Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. All right, we are in Ruth 1, and uh, it says, Now it came to pass, in the days when the judges ruled, so sadly, we're kind of still in the book of Judges. There was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of the wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malan and Chilon, Chilion, the Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and they remained there. Context is, in the Hebrew Bible, Ruth is actually in the book of Judges. So there's no book of Ruth in the Hebrew Bible. The reason for that is the first sentence in the days of the Judges. When they compiled the book of Judges, they took those narratives from all 12 of the tribes after being exiled. So they gathered and put those things together. It's believed that the first part of Judges, 1 through 16, was compiled by Samuel under the kingship of David. And they started to gather these texts and keep them in the temple as the temple was about to be built. They were getting those records ready. And then during exile, these other stories were added because chronologically, this is when those stories happened. At the end of the, the end result is God has created a book for us between Judges and Ruth that really goes together harmoniously, which is kind of a miracle. It's really hard to do that over hundreds of years. So they create a comprehensive book. And in the Hebrew, the, the judges ruling there is actually the judges judged. Uh, and, and that's the era of what's going on here. It's a standalone story. Ruth is a literary piece that stands all by itself. Uh, the last passage in the book of Ruth, if you look at the end of chapter 4, there's a genealogy there that gets used by both Matthew and Luke in their genealogies for Christ. Part of what's important about Ruth is that it's a link um, that connects us um, between Jacob and King David. It, it gets us that link that we wouldn't otherwise have in the chronology. Chronicles and Kings does a lot more work going on from there, but Ruth is kind of the one place in the Old Testament where we get that piece. Uh, contrast from Judges, which is why in the Christian Bible it got separated out. The theme of Ruth is very distinct from the book of Judges, but if you think of the book of Judges as fairly depressing, which is kind of how we approached it, Ruth is the exact opposite. It's fairly encouraging. And in the middle of the days of the Judges when they're ruled and there's famine in the land, we know from the Old Testament when there's famine in the land, it means that the people have fallen away from God. So in Deuteronomy 11:16, it says, Take heed to yourselves that your heart's not deceived. If you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them, the Lord's wrath will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens that there is no rain and that your land will not bear fruit. So if there's famine, the people of God have fallen away. We don't really argue with that because we just read the book of Judges. Yes, they've fallen away in, in some pretty horrible ways. But in the middle of all that horribleness, there's this little city of Bethlehem of Judah, so it's not the Bethlehem up north. And again, we, I mean, is somebody keeping track of how many times we've seen the city of Bethlehem mentioned? This podunk little town of maybe 2,000 people. 
Like this is the size of Medelia, Minnesota. So it's not a town people have heard of, but it is prominent in the Old Testament that it comes up. So in contrast to Gilead, which we just did in Judges 19 through 21, where absolutely horrible stuff is going on, in contrast to Gilead, right next door is this little town called Bethlehem where there's good, decent people. And everything we see in the book of Ruth, this town looks like a place where some godly people are trying to live out the way God said to live. So they're gonna, everything we see in, Beth, in Ruth, the Israelites Ruth hangs out with are godly people, which makes it look a lot like a country where lots of people are doing evil, but there's this remnant of good, decent people in the middle of it. And they are the hope for the planet. Literally, in the case of Ruth, they're the line of the Messiah. That little group of people just living out their lives as godly as they can. So that's what we're going to see here. But that famine stands in stark contrast uh, to the richness that we're going to see. Sets a contrast where these people don't live in good times. They're experiencing a famine even though they're trying to be godly. But the family we see in the first few verses, and this is important, it says, and they went. They chose to leave God's people and God's holy land for Moab. So we start the book of Ruth with them doing the wrong thing, and then throughout the book they do more and more of the right things, and God just keeps blessing them. In the book of Judges, they start out doing the right things, and they do more and more of the wrong things as you go through the book. So it's almost like you go down into the depths of sin, and then the book of Ruth just pulls you right out. It just redeems you from all of that, that during this season they have it. But it starts out with them doing the wrong thing. They chose to go another place than where God told them to go. God says to settle in the Holy Land. They choose to take off for Moab. We don't know why. It doesn't say. Maybe life is better there. Maybe, maybe Naomi's bothering her husband, saying, I just am worried about food, and what are we going to do about retirement? And what's this all going to look like? And she just keeps getting on his case until they move out of the country and they leave. Maybe Elimelech just does it on his own. Either way, the context of this first chapter is that they reverse the bad decision of leaving Israel. But it takes some events before that happens. Things start out bad for Naomi. Verse 3. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. That's bad. And she was left with her two, and her two sons. And now they took wives of the women of Moab. They're not supposed to do that. Bad decision. The name of the one was Or Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. And they dwelt there about 10 years. Then both Malan and Chilion also died. So the women survived her two sons and her husband. So verse 5 sets the context for this beautiful story. Her life is not a good one. And, and, and in fact, she's going to say herself that God's hand was against her. A uh, few things. Elimelech, it's kind of ironic. It says my, his name means my God is king in the Hebrew. But if his God is a king, why is he going to Moab? So it, it's, there's an irony there. The name Naomi is delight. And later on, she's going to point out the irony in her name. The kids' names are both imply that these kids were needy and sickly. Uh, and I don't know who names their kids this, but Malan means sick. So maybe this kid was a, uh, a sickly kid, grew up with a frog in their throat. Then Chilion's me name means pining or to constantly need things from people, asking for things all the time. I think the Jewish people of this era were extremely blunt in their naming. And like some of that, like they're naming in part, there's character traits there, but uh, we would not name our kids sick kid or pining kid uh, in American culture, but they did. And, that's, and, and so you get some sense of what they were like, at least at children. Uh, Orpah means gazelle, Ruth means friendship. Uh, it could be that Ruth's name was given, it, that maybe that was not her Moabite name, but that she got a new name later. 
because in Ruth, in Hebrew, it does mean friendship. And Ruth becomes the biblical example of a good friend. So it's highly likely that like Peter's name was changed and Paul's name was, was changed, that Ruth's name is changed, and that, but they never record her old name, and that might even be it, like Ruth didn't want it recorded that way. Who knows? So the woman and the two daughter-in-laws, they take husbands. There's apparently no kids between any of these three couples. That's another curse that the Hebrew people would have seen. Making kids was something God commanded back in Genesis. So to not have kids is something that would have been hard on all three of these families or these couples. Um, and there's this just idea of outliving your kids. It's kind of one of the worst things that can happen for Naomi is to see both of her sons die. The other piece of Elimelech dying and both of the sons is that as a Hebrew man, he would have had inheritance or territory that he could always buy back back in Israel. But by both of his sons dying, that inheritance that stands to re- could die too. And that whole family line of Israel would be uh, erased or ended, and that can happen. But that's another way in which Naomi is just thinking, wow, life in Moab hasn't treated her so well. So she was left with these folks, and she learns the lesson. And maybe this whole trip to Moab was just so that she could disciple these two young women for 10 years and be a blessing in their life. And you never know why they're out there, if it was God's calling or not. But she's left with this, implies that this is all she's left with. So in the hopes of going to Moab to make a better life, living in the world doesn't make a better life. It just doesn't work that way. Living outside of God's people and away from God's people has caused destruction in these families. It hasn't been a blessing to these families. And Naomi herself is going to point that out. Verse 6, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law, that she might return from the country of Moab. For she, and this is, listen to why she changes her mind about Moab. She had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Well, that's interesting. So she's living in the world, and then she hears that the people of God, that God's visiting them. God's presence is there, and he's providing for them. Therefore, she went out from the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah, All of the book of Ruth can be seen as an illustration of the Christian life that starts with one very important thing. When you're living in the world, you hear about God's people and you turn towards them. In the Greek, that word is to repent, to change your direction from going to Moab and saying, I'm going to go back to Israel. I'm going to go be with God's people. And Naomi makes this decision to turn and repent uh, which is the message of John the Baptist and Jesus, Matthew 4, 17. You can tell where we're at in Sunday mornings. In fact, I'll make a few references to Matthew 5 today. But this very first act, even though she's in Moab, is to say, I'm going to at least get up. She arose, verse 6, and I'm going to head to Israel. I'm going to go back to where God wants his people to be. I'm going to go back to the fellowship. Uh, this is as a, as a newly widowed woman with two daughters, two Moabite daughters, their prospects aren't very good back in Israel. But it's better to be in Israel with no prospects than to be in the world and have no prospects. right? I'd rather be with God's people where there's at least a chance at mercy. So she gets up. She chooses to go where God's told her people to be. Part of it is she's heard this. Part of the hearing part here, a lot of people believe that Ruth's story would have partnered with Gideon. Because Gideon, remember, there was a famine in the land at the beginning of Judges. And Gideon was in the threshing floor secretly threshing out the grain and, and, and trying to get away with it because the Midianites were coming in stealing all the food. 
So it might be or that the story that went far and wide is that 300 Israelites just beat the Midianite army. God showed up, and now the, Midi the Israelites can eat their food. There's now bread to eat. So in our thing, it just says, um, oh, I'm in the wrong spot, that she heard the country of Moab, that the Lord visited his people and helped these 300 people win an amazing battle with Gideon, and then he gave them bread, or now they have food to eat. So they're not being starved by the Midianites anymore. So time to move back. Um, I like the idea that God visits people. God visited his people in verse 6. God's an interactive God, and we see that throughout the Bible. And it's just another place to point that out. But the stories of what God's doing in Israel are starting to spread around the known world. And we see that through the book of Ruth. It's a really interesting, like these stories we're reading about what happens in Israel, they're not staying in Israel. God's glory is going as far as Egypt and Tarsus and, and Moab. And it's spreading out through the region. The land of Judah there is the word Eretz. It's interesting um, because it's not the country of Israel. It's the land of Judah at the end of seven. God puts Israel on a piece of property. There's actual land there. Again, the word is Eretz for land. There is earth that is Judah's. Um, it, it's kind of like when we say the land. We're not just saying that they went to Israel the place. They went to the land. It's like when we say the holy land. You can say the holy land anywhere on planet earth. Everybody knows what you're talking about. The holy land is in this spot of earth, really in the middle of the planet, um, that is centered of where God does everything and things go out from that area of the world. Uh, verse 8. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go and return each to your mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you've dealt with the dead and me. The Lord grant you that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. So she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and they wept. And they said to her, surely we're going to return with you to your people. Like I want to go be an Israelite because Moabites suck, right? I don't want to be with these people. Like I know what the Moabites do and it's nasty. Like we've been in your household now 10 years. Naomi, whatever you have, we want what you have because your household was sweet and wonderful. And the, 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 that idea of go and return, Naomi knows that Israelites have strict marriage laws. If these two young ladies come with Naomi, she knows they're likely never going to get married. They're giving up the idea of marriage. And so we see the first kind of sacrifice that they're even willing to make is one of saying, I don't care if I ever get married. Marriage isn't the most important thing in my life. <clears throat> Being with God's people far more important. So they think that way. Number two, they're previously married women. That lowers their prospects even more. These are not virgin women. So it's going to be even harder for them to get a spouse in Israel, at least with the culture that was there. Here's the other thing. They were married for 10 years with no kids. So a lot of Israelite men that are looking for their bride aren't going to pick the woman that's 10 years older than them and they're not going to, I mean, and has already been married and didn't have kids in that 10 years. Like these women really don't have high prospects back in Israel. I think Naomi recognizes that and, and wishes that they go home. Notice she doesn't say go home to your fathers, right, which would be kind of a humiliation. Go home to your moms because that's a temporary spot for you to get remarried to a good Moabite man if there are good Moabite men, right? So return to your mother's house as a way of officially releasing them from any legal obligations. They're free to go. 
and, and free to get new dowries or, or, or anything else. And the, uh, the term to find rest there is specifically to find rest in a secure family. Because Naomi is not secure and she realizes that. She doesn't have land. She doesn't have income. She's broke. And if they come with her, they're going to be beggars on the street with her. This is not a good plan for most people. So I think Naomi in love realizes that and knows that she can't offer these two young ladies much of anything. So she lets them go. The kiss is to symbolize that release of obligation and it's to do it with love. And the kiss for me at least is this idea of just a sweet relationship that these women have. They're friends, they're sisters. And they have come to love and respect one another living in the same house over 10 years. And so there's a, a relationship here of almost adopted parenthood. And at least for Naomi's part, getting up and going is to follow God. Like that's all she knows is she's going to go back to God's people. And she doesn't have a plan when she does that. And it's, she's not wishing that these daughters get on board with her lack of plan. Like I wouldn't wish that on anybody, right? They lift up their voices and read a clear sign of just this is horrible parting of ways. If they leave, they're never going to see each other again. But there's clearly a dear and loving relationship that's here. The decision for Naomi to turn is part of what reveals these sweet relationships that she had. Her decision to love the Lord, she's going to get to see who wants to love the Lord with her. And it sorts and it filters in the next few verses. They say, surely we'll return with you and your people. Let's not forget, especially for Ophrah, she actually has the desire to go with Naomi. So the first round, both of the daughters are like, we're there. Uh, the word surely is a causal conjunction. It shows a connection to what was going on. So their sadness, their love, the kindness are the causes for them to say, surely we'll return with you and your people. Because we love you, Naomi, we're not going anywhere. Like, we'll go with you. Knowing how the world lives and seeing how Naomi's family live, she was a light in their life. And they say, we would rather have your family as destitute as it is than our families back at home. There might be more security there, but there's love here. And I think when people see godliness, there's just no comparison. And for me, I grew up in a home that was a little rougher. And when I saw godly families, everything in me wanted to be closer to that when I grew up. All I knew is I wanted someone like Steph to be my wife, right? A good, decent person where we could have a decent life. We didn't have to live like that. And I, and I feel for these two girls when they say something like that because they get it. Verse 11, Naomi's, she's still going to let them go. Nobody comes to the kingdom under obligation, even Moabite women, right? Con contrast this with all the women that were abducted last week, right? Hundreds of women just being stolen from their homes. But you get the exact opposite tone in Ruth. Not only are these two women not being stolen away, they're being given complete autonomy and freedom over their life. There's no slavery in the kingdom. But Naomi said, verse 11, turn back, my daughters, the familiarity there. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Uh, okay, I want to stop there real quick. One of the Jewish laws is that of redemption. So if a man dies, it's the brother's job to take that woman into his family so that she's not destitute and left on the streets. So a household of brothers and husbands takes care of all the women in their family. And if one guy dies, that guy's family gets taken care of, right? Very mafia-like, but in a holy way, not a mafia way, okay? Why don't you go home? I don't have more sons in my womb. I don't have any brothers to take you in. 
So there's no one to take you. Verse 12, turn back, my daughters, go. I'm too old to have a husband. I'm beyond that. If I, if I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should then bear sons, are you going to wait for them to grow up? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? Are you going to give it up too? No, my daughters. It grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. You hear the argument of Naomi there? I'm not obligating you to go. Here's a kiss, you're released. No, 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 we're going to go with you. Okay, think about what you're doing. She's telling them to stop and weigh the costs. The cost is you'll never be remarried. And I don't have anything to offer you. I don't have other sons or anything like that. And the hand of the Lord is against me. Naomi loves them so much that she's, I think she's doing this out of love. I want you to have a good life. You're too young to take on what I got handed to me. You don't need my bitter soil. You can have a, a new life and a new family. It's not going to be easy with me. The only problem with Naomi's argument is she's only looking at the earthly things. And she's only looking at what the world has to offer. And truthfully, she's right. The world doesn't have much to offer here. The phrase, if, and then I have hope, implies that she doesn't have hope. If I even had hope of these things, but she doesn't. She has no hope for anything better than what she's got. <laughs> What's amazing to me, studying Matthew 5 this morning and then this tonight, the Beatitudes follow this book to a T. And I'm just going to read a few as we go through this story. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. She doesn't know she's got a kingdom of heaven ahead of her. Like literally, this is the line of Jesus. But she's blessed in that she's, Naomi's at a place right now, she's just poor of spirit. She recognizes she has nothing to offer these two girls. Just nothing. If I should have a husband tonight is a glimpse of her character, and the honor. She doesn't even consider illicit sex, right? People, widows could prostitute themselves. She doesn't even consider it. If I had a husband and I could make kids tonight, like they wouldn't be old enough by the time you need them to be your husband's. But she doesn't even, it shows you the purity of Naomi's thinking. She doesn't even consider the other options of just getting pregnant. Any redeemer of these women, this interesting Jewish law, they would have to not only pay for the wives, like the, what do you call that, dowry? They'd have to pay for Elimelech's portion of the inheritance. So they'd have to buy Elimelech's land and take the wife with her. Okay, financially, that's an investment because you now get an inheritance. But according to the law, as soon as Elimelech's grandsons show up, they get all of that inheritance handed back to them so it stays in the bloodline family. This is important to the Jewish people. It's a big deal. And it's all part of the Deuteronomic law. But what that means is, if I marry this Moabite woman, I can buy Elimelech's land, but I only get that land as long as I, that grandson's not old enough to take it. So even if they have kids, they lose their entire investment. It's not a good business proposition. Does that make sense? So I think Naomi's thinking through all of these things. When she says it grieves me, that word grief there is, is much more significant than just grieving death. She's grieving the lost life that they will have if they go with her. The Lord has gone out from her, right? So likely this is because they left Israel in the first place. And Naomi maybe is even convinced that the Lord is bringing this on her because maybe she was the one that convinced Elimelech to move in the first place. At least that she's assuming the Lord's against her on this. So to return to Israel for her is to repent and change. 
And then she says, it grieves me very much for your sakes. She's thinking that they're suffering because of her things. Matthew 5, 4, blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. She doesn't know that comfort's on the way, but she's definitely in mourning right here. <clears throat> Here's the other thing. If Naomi's right and the Lord's against her, she recognizes Jehovah's a relational God. He can be blessing and he can be cursing. And she has a right understanding of that when it comes to God. Uh, and she correctly believes that Yahweh deals with individuals in addition to dealing with nations. Now, Ruth's one of the first places we see that. Most of Judges, Joshua, the Torah, God dealt with the nation of Israel through individuals. But here he's just dealing with Naomi and not dealing with a nation. Do you see that? So there's this image of God being an extremely personal, intimate God that's here. Um, <clears throat> if, God's God, if God's hand is against you and you feel like you're being cursed by God, the correct response is to return to Israel. Get back with God's people. Get back into the word of God. Get back into the prayer and the communion of the saints. If God's against you and your life is a disaster, the solution isn't to run away from church, which most people do. If the God's hand is against you, the correct solution is to get back to church, which is Naomi's doing all the right things. She starts out on the wrong path, but she's turning, repenting, moving in the right direction. She's not accusing God of anything. She's just stating, hey, my life has not gone well, and it might have something to do with how I've been living it. So she's going to make a change towards God instead of way. I just think that's such a great idea. She even though God might be against... By the way, if it says God is against me and this is the Bible, that means it's possible for God, God to be against people. <clears throat> that's not a popular thought. Sorry, Flem. It's not something that you're going to hear typically in, in churches that try to say God's always fluffy towards people. When people are doing the wrong thing, sometimes love is to discipline and bring them back to where they need to be. If a kid does something horrendous, like eats a, a guest at your house, goes into their coat pocket and steals all their Skittles and eats them, the correct reaction of the parent is not to be fluffy towards the kid. <clears throat> correct reaction from the parent is to be against that kid's behavior, like stop stealing Skittles. And we have to make this right. The correct behavior of the kid is to say, oops, I'm sorry, I will work to replace the Skittles. And they're going to make it right. And, and I think that idea that God can be against people, he's not against people, he wants them to come into the kingdom, but to bring bad experiences into someone's life, to redirect them, is also possibly one of the ways God deals with people. So, Romans 8.31, people often use this. There's a song out there that's like, if God's for me, God is always with me. God's on my side. What's the lyrics to that? It's one of those big, huge worship songs right now. Does anybody know? God is for us. God's always for us. Anybody? No? Nobody can help me with the lyrics to that song. Well, that's good. You're not listening to songs with bad theology. God is for me. God is not against me. Right? Double negatives. It's just bad writing. Uh, but, but the reality is it's not true. And it's a misquoted from Psalm 59, 56.9. What then should we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? There's an if in front of that, which implies that God might not be for us, especially if we're living in sin. In fact, God says that's not good and it's not holy and God's not for people that live and proclaim sin. They forget the if in the song. They just God is always for us and God is never against us. 
Well, that's not true if you're living in sin. He might be trying to discipline you. So, I love the fact that Naomi just trusts God. Verse 14, uh, this is their reaction. She just gave him a really nice, frankly, this is practical, and everything she said to these girls just made sense, right? She's really speaking truth to these girls. You have no life with me. But she's looking at it for an earthly sense. Here's how the girls react. They lift up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, agreeing to the release of responsibility. But Ruth clung to her. At this point of weighing the costs of going back to be with the people of God, some people say no thank you, and some people go back. Both of these girls love Naomi. It's not an issue of love. It's an issue of making a rational decision in the face of the consequences that come with being a child of God. It's a decision that we make. It's not an emotional reaction. The first round was the emotional reaction. The second round is, okay, I'm hearing everything you're saying, and I don't want to give up my possibility at a family. And these, I don't want to give up these things. I'm not willing to give up the prospects I might have in Moab and in the world. But to become a Christian, we have to say, I'm going to give up all hope of anything in the world. I don't care about the world anymore. I'd rather go into the unknown godly than the known ungodly. And there's that decision. And Ruth becomes the hero because she does this. But let's not demonize Orpah. She loved Naomi the same way Ruth did. So there's definitely a heart and a compassion, but she can't get over wanting things from the world. And so she leaves, and she kisses her, and she takes off, um, and she goes back to Moab. The word clung for Ruth, she clung to her. The, the idea of clinging is a sticking or adhesion. If, if Naomi tried to shake Ruth off of her, she wouldn't have been able to do it. So when she uses the word clung there, it's the same word that in Genesis gets associated with marriage. That a man and a woman should cling to one another. Can't separate them anymore. They're, they're a team. But Ruth makes that same kind of lifetime bond with Naomi. And this is not a lesbian relationship. Just don't even go there. That's so ridiculous. But she says, no, I'm going to live my life with you. It doesn't matter what happens next. It's a godly sisterhood of just being loyal and committed to one another. So Ruth clings to her in that kind of way, and she, if anything, marries herself to the kingdom of God or marries herself to Jesus. Like, I'd rather be with God than anything else. And if I never get married, I'm okay with that. Fine with that. And she said, look, this is Naomi again. Your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Ruth, like, I can't uncling you, but you can still uncling yourself. You're not obligated to this life. This is not exactly evangelism, is it? Like, Naomi's doing the opposite of what we, like, we're always trying to invite people in. And Naomi's, like, pushing her away three times, like, giving her every chance in the world to go follow after the world. And in the third argument, it's spiritual. Your sister-in-law went back to her people and her gods. This isn't just about husbands and friendship. This is about where they're going to worship. And in this third appeal from Naomi, she makes it a spiritual appeal. It's about that. So in verse 15, this is the, the third appeal, there's no shame in going back that direction. Naomi doesn't need Ruth to come with her, but you can bet she wants her. God doesn't need us in his kingdom, but you can bet he wants us in his kingdom. There is a love and a compassion that made these girls weep. Naomi adores these girls, but she's not going to require anything of them that they're not willing to give. 
and it looks so much like the king, it's an image of the kingdom of God. But Ruth said, oh, it's just beautiful. We're going to, I'm not going to go into chapter two tonight because I want to sit on this, uh, this, this beautiful response. But Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you or turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I'll go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people should be my people and your God is my God. Wherever you die, I will die and there I will be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts you and me. Sounds like a marriage vow. It gets used in some marriages. It's an absolute lifetime commitment. The main difference between Ruth and Orpah, they're both loving, they both admire Naomi, but one clung to her and one didn't. That's the difference. There's lots of people that love Jesus. Not everybody clings to Jesus because that's all they want. And there is a difference. There's a huge difference. Some people inherit the kingdom of God and some people don't. The uh, idea of entreat me in the beginning of verse 16, the word entreat there has to do with a complete submission and begging from somebody that's at a lower status. There's a humility that comes with what she's saying when she says entreat me. She's, she's giving up her life uh, there's five affirmations in that passage that Ruth gives to Naomi. Each affirmation shows Naomi that she fully understands what she's committing to with a life with God's people, that she's going to choose to be in that thing. Uh, th there's one appeal, the entreat me, uh, and then there's these five declarations. The declarations are what she will do. This is her commitment or a kind of vow. This is the kind of vow God actually wants from people. Right? And the law, we're not supposed to make foolish vows to other people. But this vow to live with God's people, this is the kind of vow God wants. Um, it's like Ruth is saying, Naomi, it's not about you, and it's not about your people. It's about your God, and I'm going to give my life to that God that you serve. Because Ruth could see the difference that God made in this family. So the five affirmations are she's going to go, she's going to lodge, live with, She's going to accept the people of God. She's going to accept God. And five, she's going to die with. She's going to do this till the day she dies. And that's going to be her calling. So it's a choice then to forsake the old gods that Naomi offered, and she's choosing, choosing the true God over it. It's absolutely a spiritual decision. It's not just about hanging out with Naomi. Naomi's life, though, has made an impact on Ruth, and God's spirit in Naomi has, had, has shown love to Ruth that she's not going to leave. Our lives should be like that too, especially when we interact with people that aren't living with God. And If we have family and friends like that, we should exhibit so much love and compassion for the people around us that they see God in us. And, and we move forward that way. So after 10 years, Ruth has no doubt in her mind where, which God she wants to serve based on living with Naomi. But she didn't make this vow until now right? So it's at that thinking of losing that godly connection that Ruth says, I'll change everything for you. So there's, there's nothing to say Ruth wasn't serving both gods at some level, but there's this choice here. The choice is a consecration. She makes a decision to give her life to the Lord. That is to set something aside for the Lord. It's to consecrate something. And it is the most beautiful thing we do as believers, the text shows, I think, that because we've gone through three rounds between the two women, uh, the decision wasn't hasty. It was made understanding what was there, there was being made a decision about. And Ruth clearly connects it to God and speaks it. 
So this is the kind of thing like when people are making a decision for Christ, we ask them like, to, okay, what are you making a decision for? And we need to see that they know and understand what they're making a decision about. So the Lord do so to me and more also. Uh, there's this indication Ruth has that whatever curse you think you have, Naomi, it's better than going back to the people of Moab. Honestly, you think you're cursed. I'm in your curse with you. We're together on that. I accept whatever you have. Christ tells us to take up his cross. Like when we invite people to be Christians, do you know we're inviting them to persecution? Like that is part of being a believer. See Matthew 5. Like it's part of the game plan. That there are people that will roll their eyes at you because you're a holy roller and you're trying to be righteous. Why are you doing that when you can go drink with us? Right? We make a decision to consecrate ourselves when we become believers and that's what we're actually inviting other people to do too. To give up the worldly parts of their life to come follow a holy king. And if you don't get that decision and if that's not a black and white slam dunk for you, you need to keep weighing the costs. But move it along because we don't know when Christ is going to return. You may not have that much time to do that. But people have to sort it through for themselves. Um, this attitude, by the way, Luth, Ruth invokes Yahweh, the Lord there, should be in all caps. She's making it very clear to Naomi that, no, I understand Jehovah, a personal God, unique to the Israelites. That's the God I serve. She didn't ask if Gentiles were welcomed or not. That's probably good. Probably a lot of legalistic Israelites at this point. She just assumes that she's welcome in the kingdom, and she's right. And God puts this story. She becomes a legend of the faith because of that passage and that decision. It's God's Old Testament biblical example of a conversion statement, right? This is the prayer of salvation in the Old Testament. So that's what Ruth contributes in her, her selflessness and her sacrifice. Even if life with God's people might be pretty bad, it's still pretty good compared to the Moabite life. I'll take bad with God over, over, over good with the, the Moabites. So God's going to bless both her and Naomi, but the ladies don't know this yet. What just happened here is exactly what God wants from his people. Complete abandon to the life with God. Nothing short of it. Or as we like to say, all in. Right? I'm all in till the day I die. That's what I'm doing. God's going to bless these two incredibly. And he's going to weave this story into his own um, arrival on the planet Earth when he condescends himself and makes himself manifest as a human being, these two women are both going to be in his heritage story. And he's going to make sure of it. Matthew just names Ruth outright. God didn't love just the Israelites. He gave his only son for the Israelites and for the entire world. He poured his entire life out for us, and Ruth's doing the exact same thing in her prayer. She's given her whole life back to the Lord. That's reasonable. It's our reasonable gift back to the Lord. Romans 12.1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable surface. It's the only thing that makes sense. God gave everything for us. We give everything back to him. It's the only option. So what Ruth does here is more than just an expression of friendship. It's far from that. It's an expression to take on the God of Israel as her own and it's salvation itself. Verse 18, when she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. So when Naomi saw that she's not going to shake Ruth, she stopped trying. Blessed are the merciful, they shall obtain mercy. She just says, okay. 
Oh, if you want another one of the Beatitudes here, the attitude of Ruth, just being hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Like all these promises, they don't know the promises because they, they didn't hear the Beatitudes. But God's like recognizing every element of this story fits with the Beatitudes just perfectly. And by the way, in order. It's crazy. So when she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking with her here. Issues settle. There's no convincing or otherwise. When people want to come into the kingdom of God, there's no stopping them. All we can do is get in their way. You know, honestly, we got to get out of the way because when people are coming and the Holy Spirit's led them to come, they are coming with or without us. And if we screw it up, they'll find another Christian that won't and because they're getting into the kingdom and you can't stop them. Lisa took three years to find a, a fellowship to study the word with. You can't stop her. Once she's coming, she's coming. And no use fighting it. So her decision turns the tide of the story. We're all done with the cursings part. Everything else in Ruth, it gets better. Don't worry, it gets better. Everything just gets better for these women from this point of hopelessness and destitution in the middle of stinking Moab, right? Everything's going to get better. Verse 19, now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. That's a long, that one little sentence is a really long journey. Uh, that's 75 miles, 3,000 feet down, and then another 4,000 feet up, right? So it's not just 75 miles. It's 75 miles of some of the worst hiking territory on the planet Earth. Two women are doing this on their own. One of them's an old lady. She was probably, do you think Naomi was really happy that Ruth clung to her, though? Like, at the end of the day, Naomi's just like, ah, oh, that's the first blessing that she gets after making the decision to go back to Israel, is she's got a friend. And what a blessing for this little old lady to have somebody that'll go with her. And I bet Ruth was like holding her up and helping to patch her feet at the end of the night. And you can, ble- you can bet that that kind of friendship is desired. Tolkien uses that with the image between Frodo and Samwise. Frodo didn't ask Samwise to come, but what a blessing that Samwise did come, that he had a friend that was there till the end with him. And so that image of friendship and just you can't stop them. And there was no talking to Samwise either, right? He'd made the decision. He'd resolved to it. That's my Lord of the Rings reference for tonight. There's a long journey. There's no waystones. And we know from the book of Judges that there were bandits all over these roads. So these aren't safe roads for two young women or two women, one old, one young, one Israelite, one Moabite. This is not safe territory for these women to travel through. We saw that last week. And, when it, and it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that, the, that all the city was ready to cut them up into pieces. And some, No, 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 that's not Bethlehem. That's Gilead. Bethlehem's a little bit different, just a small country town. They were excited because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? Like, it's been 10 years. Naomi, is that you? They actually knew who she was and said, welcome back. What's crazy is when people stop attending a fellowship, they almost feel guilty to come back because it's been so long, people are going to ask me where I've been, and I don't know if I want to return, and get over yourself. It can be 10 years. We're just glad to see you back. Welcome back, right? It doesn't matter how long people have been gone or outside the fellowship. When you're back, we all know you. You may be 10 years older, but we know what you look like, Um, and that's how it is. They see Naomi, and they're like, is that you? And, And she's just got 75 miles of travel on her. She's probably not very well bathed. Her hair's a little bit of a mess. You know, her Gucci shoes have probably lost a heel or something like that. The excited word there in that verse is one that connotes amazement in addition to happiness. So, oh, we're really happy to see you, Naomi, but also this tone of, oh my goodness, you're back. We thought you left for better lands. We thought Moab was the answer. 
but there's this amazement that they actually came back. Um, and of course, along with this return would be like, where's Elimelech? Where are your sons? What's going on? Like, where is everybody? We can assume those questions were part of that conversation. But here's the other thing. All the city came out. Like, this isn't a big town. Like, they all, it's a small town. They all know each other. But all the city came out to see him. Welcome home. And they're just welcoming her back. Things aren't on the up and up for her, but it sure helps to have a lifetime friend and a whole city of people happy to see you. Like, things just keep getting better for her. And they, they thought she was gone forever, but now she's back. No tone in verse 19. No hint of accusation. No hint of, why did you leave here in the first place? That wasn't God's plan for you. None of that judgment, none of that nastiness. This is just a place where she can be safe and not worry about you know, being kicked out in the street by her husband in the night so she can scrape her way back to the threshold the next morning. None of that in Bethlehem. This is a different kind of town. But she said to them, verse 20, don't call me Naomi. Remember that means delight. Call me Mara, which has gotten to be a popular name, by the way. And I don't know why, because you know what Mara means? Bitter, right? Call me Mara. Call me bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord's brought me home again empty. I left for Moab with all the hope in the world. Husband, two sons, everything's looking shinier over in Moab. But you know what? The world didn't do anything good for me. It chewed me up and it spat me out. And so I come back empty. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? Naomi, I think, comes back. This isn't self-deprecatory. It's truthful. You ever go into the people of God and there's something like in your flesh that wants to impress them with how holy you are? But when we fight that and we just come to the people of God and we're like, you know what? No, life isn't perfect. And we are able to admit freely what's wrong in our life in addition to how great everything is, right? The struggles are as important as anything else. Sometimes when I ask at the beginning, like, what's the Lord doing in your life? That's not just a brag on all the good stuff. Sometimes with Naomi, you know what? The Lord's really afflicting me. I'm really under it right now. And I need some prayer. And when you come to the people of God, we don't judge for that. We recognize that's part of life. But I think what I appreciate about Naomi's response here is it's flat out honest, right? There's a pureness to what's coming out of her mouth from her heart. Oh, another beatitude. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. There's a purity in what she's saying. Like, she's just admitting she's screwed up. Moab was not the right answer. She uses the word almighty here. um, For the almighty has dealt bitterly with me. Um, the word in the Hebrew means Shaddai. Uh, It is the all-sufficient one. So the all-sufficient one has made me insufficient. And there's this, she's recognizing a truthful relationship with God. God has everything and I have nothing. And what an honest place to be. What a great place to start your walk with Christ. I'm not good. I'm a hot mess. It's been really tough for me. That's my attitude Come into the church. And they just say, welcome in. The courage of being honest with people is certainly harder than just saying, oh, it's all good. Where's your husband? Oh, he died. No big deal. It takes a lot more courage to express your pain and your hurt in those situations. And I pray as a fellowship that you don't have those pains and hurts. But I'm also realistic. Sometimes we do. Sometimes things happen in life that do hurt. 
I went out full, makes you question why she left, but nobody asks her that, at least in the text. The Lord brought me home. <laughs> notice in the beginning of the chapter, they chose to leave, but notice that the Lord brought her home. There's no alternative. She's following the Lord's lead. So that's the directionally the way it usually goes. Our flesh leads us away from the body of Christ. God brings us back to the body of Christ. God's will for his people are not to be alone. That's not good. It's to be in community with each other. He's afflicted. That word has afflicted is both in the past and present tense. He has afflicted and she is afflicted. Her daughter Ruth is with her, likely helping with a tough trip, but she doesn't have her sons or her husband with her. Each step towards home probably made her more and more physically exhausted. So she comes home destitute with only one fruit. That's the Ruth. She's faced death and she's lived. And she's about to see God's sufficient provision in her life and how God works to provide for his children. And, and she's about to see God's amazing blessing. If we have hardship without humility, we lose the gift of hardship. If we go through tough times and we don't humble ourselves to the Lord, we miss out on what the offering of hard times is. The fruit of hardship and suffering should be humility. And Naomi's kind of getting that here. If we suffer without moving towards God, we miss the point of that suffering. If it is coming from God, the point of it is us for, to turn back towards him. So Naomi, verse 22, returned. The word there is actually repented. So Naomi repented. She comes back to where she started at the beginning of the chapter. She got away from God. Now she's back home. And Ruth the Moabite is her daughter with her who returned from the country of Moab. Naomi the Israelite returns to Israel. Ruth the Moabite returns from the country of Moab. Notice how they're both returning, but from very different places. You see that? Same word. In other words, they're both repenting, and this is not a geographical location issue. This is turning towards God away from the world. And that's for both a Jew and a Gentile all together in this chapter. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. I'm going to get into barley next week because <laughs> it's kind of setting up the next thing. But I want to talk about this word return. It means shub in the Hebrew. And, and I just like the word shub. Literally to turn back and to figuratively turn back. It has more to do with an actual physical direction. So when I use the word shub in the Hebrew, it means it has a spiritual connotation too. And they both turn back or repent. Naomi in general, um, Ruth from the Gentile history, they repent and they go back to Bethlehem, which is, ironically, they have nothing and they come to the house of bread. This is where the food is. And for the church age, it's the same thing. The place the food is is wherever the word of God's being taught. Where two or three are gathered in my name, I'll be there also. That's where the word of God gets taught. So they, and I don't think it's a coincidence. I don't think there's any accidents in this. In fact, seeing the Beatitudes just play out in this chapter, none of it's an accident. It's intentional. It's perfectly fitting with the teachings of Jesus. It perfectly fits a story of salvation. Everything stands under the weight of both a literal story, a beautiful story, and a spiritual story. And it all holds up in all directions. If we return to God, then we return to God's people where God's word is being read. 
And that's part of what's going on here. Literally the city of bread when you talk about Bethlehem. And we do what God has planned for us. Uh, It's important to note, Naomi has no idea what's next. Like we do. We've read Ruth a few times, right? But she has no idea what's going to happen next in her life. But she's done all the right things. We don't need to know what's next. All we need to know is where are the people of God? Let me hang out with them. Because that's what I need for my food every week. And this is the story of chapter one is the story of Ruth and Naomi throwing in their lots together, going back to God's people and returning to where they should be. Uh, now is the, in the, at the, it says now they came to Bethlehem. Frankly, I think that's where the chapter break should be because we've seen in the book of Judges that this era of writing, when they say the word now, it's the beginning of a new narrative. And the fact that it's a barley harvest is actually relevant for chapter two. It's not really relevant for what we just did in chapter one. So we'll start at the word now next week and we'll pick up from there um, and we'll see how God's going to bless these two women in ways that they had no idea and could never have planned or designed. So, But they take agency in it, so it's kind of a cool story. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord and King, we just love the story where you elevate these two women of sorrow and pain and hurt uh, to lose a husband, to lose two sons. The amount of pain that Naomi has endured is staggering. Uh, the, the 10 years she spent uh, in grief and in, in mourning and the time she spent afterwards, like her life has been afflicted and she sees the truth of that. Um, Lord, many people in this room, we look back at our lives before Christ and we think of the time we wasted. Some of us even look at our time with Christ, Lord. We just haven't been all in. And we haven't given our whole life over to you. And that, that's just another day lost every day we do that. Lord, help us to give you everything we have. And we don't have much. Uh, we are poor in spirit, Lord. We come to you with, as beggars um, asking for your grace and your mercy. Um, but Lord, blessed are those who give mercy because they will receive mercy. So Lord, we just know what mercy looks like because you give it to us first. Uh, you came for us even when we were lost and in the country of Moab, Lord. That's where you found us and brought us home. So thank you, Lord, for doing that. For the people in this room here to study God's word tonight, what a blessing that we can look around the room and see brothers and sisters that, Lord, we're all in the same place. doesn't matter if we're a Hebrew woman or a Gentile woman or a man. Lord, it doesn't matter where we come from. We all have to repent and turn back to you to return to you. Uh, It's where all of humanity started and it's where all of humanity should end up, Lord, is back in your loving embrace and in the kingdom of God and the people of God. So, Lord, we just thank you we can gather together. Lord, may this word not go void in our life. May it not come and land on empty hearts or hard hearts. Lord, let's go through the week and remember what this looks like and this image of repentance that Ruth gave that I'll be there till the day I die. There's no turning back. Lord, help us adhere ourselves to you and cling to you Uh, that no one can shake it and no one can, uh, we will not be shaken in our commitment to you, Lord. Help us to just adhere to you and cling to you like Ruth did to Naomi. Lord, they haven't even met Boaz yet, um, but they just know that, that being with you is better than anything else, Lord. And as you send your agent Boaz to bless their lives, the same as you sent Jesus Christ to bless our lives, Lord, we just, we anticipate the blessings that you have and what's coming up next. In Jesus' name, amen.
you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.